open your Bibles this morning, please, to Esther, the book of Esther. If you didn't bring along a copy of God's Word, there should be one in a pew rack near you. And probably the easiest way to find Esther is to find Psalms and back up a couple of books. And uh, you'll find yourself there in the book of Esther. If you'll find chapter 2, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. And uh, we'll be in chapter 3. So if you'll find Esther chapter 2 for our times, you can follow along as uh, we look at God's word together today. Listen, don't be surprised, but doing right can get you into a lot of trouble. That's right. Doing right can get you into a lot of trouble. Now, we know that doing wrong can get us into a lot of trouble, right? We understand that. But how is it that doing right can get us into a lot of trouble? Well, you can go back and you can ask uh, some of the Bible characters. You can ask Daniel or you can ask uh, his friend Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego. Uh, You could go back and talk to uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis about how doing right can get you into a lot of trouble. Or you can ask the man that we're going to be looking at today uh, and thinking about somewhat today in today's passage, a man by the name of Mordecai. And as you'll see as we study through, uh, doing right can get you into a lot of trouble. But why are we surprised by that? Because I think sometimes we are. We do the right thing. We try to do the right thing. We try to do the godly thing. And it brings a world of trouble upon us. Why are we surprised by that? Because we were warned in the Bible that these things uh, can happen and will happen. The Bible tells us in um, the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who live godly... In Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's pretty strong. It says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, all will, what? Suffer persecution. You know, when we buck against this sinful world, it often bucks back. Uh, when we go up against the evil kingdom, the kingdom often will strike back. It's nothing new. Uh, it hasn't stopped. It's been going on uh, for a long time now. And we see it in our world today. But we must remember that God sees it as well. And God is faithful. We sing about that today. God, you are faithful. Uh, God is at work. God is ruling and overruling in his providence. Uh, He's sovereign over all these things. And while we can't always uh, trace his hand, we can always trust his heart. Well, when we left off our study of Esther last time, and it's been a little bit of time because we had a Baptist Men's Day and then uh, Brother Larry uh, preached here last week. And y'all celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but when we last left Esther, uh, she had been crowned the winner of the Mrs. Persia contest, if you will. And uh, she is now the queen of the kingdom. And everything seemed to be rosy. Everything seemed to be grand and great, at least for a little while. But you know what? Being a king is a dangerous thing. That's one thing I've noticed about history. You read about the kings, how many were assassinated, how many were killed. And, and being the king was a dangerous thing, just like being our president or being an elected official or being something is a dangerous thing. And there were those who were out to do away with those in positions of leadership. We'll pick up the story in verse 21 there in Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, verse 21. It says, in those days, Esther 2.21, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate. That's an important phrase. Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. And that means more than likely that he has an official position now 
in the kingdom. That's where they conducted business. That's where a lot of things were done within the gate. And we don't know if he was there because of Esther's influence or Esther's uh, maneuvering or what. We're not sure. But ever how he was there, he was there. Obviously, God was in control of these things as well. But while at the gate, he learns of an assassination plot. Big Than and Teresh, I don't know if you know them or not, but Big Than and Teresh, uh, they were up to no good. And Mordecai gains wind of it. Look at verse 22. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, beloved, as we're studying today, I want you to notice this is the first instance, first instance of Mordecai doing right. Mordecai doing right. He's loyal to the king. And he informs the king through Esther as to what is taking place. One would also have to be naive to think that he was not also concerned for the welfare of the queen, his younger cousin, Esther. Because obviously if the king's life is in jeopardy, Esther's life is in jeopardy. Look at verse 23. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on a gallows. And it is and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So the report was real. It was investigated. And by the way, it was handled very swiftly and very decidedly. But notice the last part of verse 23. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now that doesn't seem very important when you first read it. Oh, they, they wrote it down. They made a record of it. This this, this took place. But you know what? We've got to remember that God swings big doors on little hinges. And that's a key phrase and a key thing in the whole book. And we'll see later on. But if truth be known, I wonder uh, what Mordecai felt about all of this. We know from chapter 6 that Mordecai was not rewarded for this good deed. Now think about it. He saved the king's life and not even a thank you note. Not even a Whitman sampler, coffee mug. I mean, I saved the king ball cap. I mean, nothing. He just, it just seems like that he did this good deed. He, he did right. He was loyal to the king. And it seems like he was unrewarded. But listen, he's not going to go unrewarded forever. But more on that later uh, in the story as we continue studying in the weeks to come. Now, this reminds me, beloved, that much of what we do for the Lord here uh, in our Christian lives may seem to go unrewarded. Uh, but take heart, dear saint. God has it recorded in his books. He has recorded in his books the things that you're doing to bring honor and glory to him. The things that you're doing that are pleasing to him. The, the way that you're serving. The way that you're ministering. And uh, he does not miss any of it. Well, while Mordecai received no reward or recognition or promotion at this point, another man does. And he's the villain of the story. This is a fantastic, just on a story level, the book of Esther is amazing when you think about it. He's the villain of the story, this man. Probably one of the most evil villains who's ever walked across the pages of history. A man by the name of Haman. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Now, notice the description. It says in that verse, and when you're reading verses, take the time to note the words and what's being said there. In chapter 3, verse 1, notice it says about Haman that he was uh, promoted, he was advanced, and his seat was above all the princes. 
Let me just tell you what that means. He was a somebody. He was a somebody. He was second only to the king. In fact, he was a VIP in every sense of the word. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Why? For so the king had commanded concerning him. So everybody knew that Haman was somebody. But the verse doesn't end there. And in fact, what we're about to read in chapter 3, verse 2, changes the whole story. There is a but in chapter 3, verse 2. That is an incredibly important phrase. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Now, here's the $20,000 question today. Why didn't and why wouldn't Mordecai bow to Haman? Why would he risk his position? Listen, back in those days, why would he risk his life in not obeying the king's command and showing this this bowing uh, toward this man, Haman? I mean, others encouraged him to bow. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. So, I mean, not just once. They're like every day. Why aren't you bowing? Why won't you bow? I mean, they're all bowing. And here is Mordecai. He won't bow. It says he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Now, watch the next phrase for Mordecai had told them that he was a what? A Jew. Now think about that for a moment and then back up. Go back to chapter two real quick and look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Chapter two, verse 19. When virgins were gathered together a second time, that's a whole interesting thing as well. Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Verse 20. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people. Watch the next part. Just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. So we have a situation where Mordecai told Esther, don't reveal that you're a Jew. Don't tell them of your people. Don't tell them exactly your heritage. But it says there in chapter three, verse two, uh, or excuse me, chapter three, verse uh, four, that Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai. Well, these names are getting confusing, aren't they? Uh, that Mordecai, he reveals that he is a Jew. And so the question is, why wouldn't he bow? Well, he gives you the answer because he was a Jew. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, didn't Jews, couldn't they bow and show, you know, respect and so forth to people? Sure. Well, listen, lean in. I got to confess something to you. I deviate from a lot of Bible scholars here. And I probably can't even hold a candle to, to all of them. But many of them say, well, here's what's going on in this passage. They say, well, here's what's happening. This fellow Haman, uh, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, they say, in, in their minds, they tie him back to King Agag and the Amalekites and the enemies of God. And they say, well, that's the reason he wouldn't bow, because that old that old uh, uh, Haman was an Agagite and he was uh, for the Amalekites. And because uh, Mordecai was a Jew, uh, he would not uh, uh, bow to him. And that might be true. I don't know. But I think that it's not necessary to say that it's not necessary to even conjecture that. I think when it says that. Uh, uh, Haman was uh, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. It's just referring to a place. 
In fact, uh, John Whitcomb says that Jules Opert uh, published an inscription at the time of Sargon of Assyria. That's way back in 1725. It said Agag was a place in Media and it was part of this kingdom. I don't believe you have to tie Haman back to King Agag and the Amalekites and the enemy of the Jews and all that kind of thing. The reason why I think I know the reason why Mordecai would not bow uh, to um, Haman. And it wasn't because it was just a matter of just showing respect. If you go back to the original Hebrew language, Cyril Barber noted that the word that we have there, which says bow down the Hebrew word. Here's what it means to prostrate oneself, to show obeisance, implied lying flat on the ground with hands and feet extended like worship. So get that picture. I mean, he's literally like this. This board. That's it. That's it. Like worship. Is the floor clean? Boy, anyway. And it differs. Listen, it differs from the Hebrew word that means to bow or bend the knee. Commonly used in the Old Testament showing respect to superiors. So what's going on here, if I understand that correctly, and if they're right in what they're saying, that they're Hebrew, it was what's being required of these people is not just respect, not just reverence, not just like we would stand up if the president walked in. What's been going on here, beloved, is the idea of worship, exalting a man and worship. And Mordecai says, listen, I'm a Jew and I will not bow. In other words, what he's saying, beloved, is he will worship no one else but Jehovah. And so we have Mordecai doing right. And here's a second instance of it. The first instance is that he saved the king's life. The second instance is he obeyed the Lord. And surely everything's going to be smooth and, and, and rosy and right from now on, right? Wrong. Why? Because doing right can get you into a lot of trouble. And while we see Mordecai doing right, we now turn the page and see Mordecai being done wrong. Like the old B.J. Thomas song. Hey, we're going to play another somebody done somebody wrong song. Sorry, I got that one stuck in your head now, didn't I? Look at verse five of chapter three. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow. And by the way, if you don't bow and everybody else is bowed, it's pretty easy. Maybe he didn't notice at first because he's riding along in his chariot and all of his glory. But he began to notice and look over towards uh, Mordecai's direction. It says when he saw that he did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. That is literally filled with anger and poison and venom. And he had a choice to make. He had a choice to make. I find it so interesting at times the way God orchestrates things and the way that God puts things together. This was the passage for today in our study of Esther and then Sunday school class this morning. What did we talk about in Sunday school? Anger. We find an instance here in the Bible where he had a choice to make. Now, listen, be careful when you're angry. Because anger can quickly turn to hatred and to vengeance. Look at verse six. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, now watch this. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. If you like to mark your Bible, there's a phrase to mark all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom 
of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. He decided to destroy, that is exterminate, not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. And you know, King Ahasuerus had a vast kingdom. Now, Mordecai did right twice so far in the passage. And now we find he's being uh, done wrong. He's going to die is the plan. And all of his people are going to die. Listen, our actions have consequences not only for ourselves, but also for other people. But beloved, some hills are worth dying on. And you just settle in your life. And your family and your Christian life, what hills are worth dying on and which ones are not? And when the opportunity arises and there is one of those hills that you have to die on, then you have to make the choice if you're going to obey the Lord or not. Haman goes into action to exterminate these Jews. And it seems that he seeks counsel from his own higher powers, I guess. They cast lots to determine the time of this genocide. Look at verse 7. We're in chapter 3 now. Chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, so that's the first month, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. That's not a cat. That's a lot. That is the lot. They cast pur. It's not the panther's mascot either. Um, that is the lot before Haman to determine the day and the month. And it fell upon, watch this, the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So in a sense, if you will, they roll the dice, if you will, the first month. And the twelfth month comes up and they decide that's going to be the month that they're going to destroy the Jews on this particular day in this particular month. Quite a bit of time is going to take place between the first month and the twelfth month. And if you want to put a verse in your margin, here's a good verse to put right there. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 It's on the screen before you. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So here, an evil, wicked man casting lots to decide when he's going to wipe out and extinguish God's chosen people. But don't worry. Remember the providence of God. As I told you before, God slips his hand into the glove of history and he's allowing plenty of time uh, to intervene and to work these things out for his honor and his glory to deliver his people. Well, Haman is about to go into action here and he's going to go into King Ahasuerus and lay out his plans, at least enough to get their permission, uh, his permission. Look at chapter three, verses eight and nine. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus. Now watch this. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will, he sweetens the deal here, by the way. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now, he tells him it seems just enough. To get the agreement. And then he promises 10,000 talents uh, of silver into the royal treasury. And I'm told that's equivalent to $20 million in today's world. So there's, there's, there's a people in your kingdom. They're not, they're not fit to live anymore. They're disobeying you. Let me do away with them and bring $20 million into uh, the royal treasury. Now notice the callous indifference of King Ahasuerus. By the way, this is Esther's husband that we're reading about, the king. He doesn't seem to ask any questions, if any. Verses 10 and 11. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The, now watch this next phrase. If you mark your Bible, here's one. The enemy of 
the Jews. What did God call Haman? The enemy of the Jews. The Bible calls him that. Uh, Verse 11. The king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Now, his ring equaled his power, his authority, his signature. And we see that he's called the enemy of the Jews. He's certainly a forerunner of Adolf Hitler, isn't he? We look back with sadness and grief at what took place in history when it comes to Adolf Hitler and that evil, evil time. But did you know at the end of Adolf Hitler's greatest triumph? Here's what he said. And I quote Adolf Hitler and I quote God up to now has placed the stamp of approval on our battle. The year 1941 will bring completion to the greatest victory of our history. End of quote. How ignorant he was. God had already spoken concerning the Jews and those who would oppose them. And though Adolf Hitler and all of his arrogance and all of his wickedness and evilness, obviously satanically inspired, stands and says, well, God is approving this. God's already spoken. We look back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And verse 3, notice what it says. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, this is the picture of Jesus now, he's coming. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hitler doomed himself. Haman doomed himself. And anyone... Who decides to go up against God's chosen people has spoken doom upon themselves. Fighting against the Jews, beloved, was ultimately fighting against God himself. But it's obvious, isn't it? The one behind Haman, the one behind Hitler, the one behind all those evil rulers and people that seek to attack and kill God's people is none other than Satan himself. You know, when you think about Haman, and we're not even done with Haman, by the way, and I hope you'll stick with us and come back and we'll we'll keep studying together. He is an evil, wicked man. In fact, I want to give it to you today and you can see it develop even as we go throughout the series. It's interesting to compare Haman, the man Haman, of what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6. There's a passage in Proverbs chapter 6, I'm going to put it on the screen, that talks about what God hates and about what is an abomination to God. And as I read these verses, think about Haman. And as we study, think about Haman. It's a little bit smaller, but I hope you can see it. I want you to see it in one one swoop. Notice what it says. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Think about Haman. These six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Wow. When you take Haman and you lay him over that passage, it's amazing to see just how evil and wicked of a man he really was. Well, let's pick up the story. Chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. 
And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every, notice this, all people, every province, according to its script, to every people in their language. So nobody can be confused about this. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed, signed by the king with the king's signet ring. Verse 13. Here it is. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. And notice the way verse 12 describes what's to be done to the Jews. Read slowly and carefully. They're to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. Then notice it goes on to clarify, make sure there's no confusion. All the Jews, young, old, little children, women, exterminate them all. And then it says what? To kill them and plunder their possessions. Is that where part of this money is going to come from? In other words, have no mercy. If they're a Jew, kill them. If it's a baby Jew, if it's an old lady, an old man, a family, just, just wipe them out, kill them. Verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people. They should be ready for that day. And it says in verse 15, the carriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. And notice the last part of verse 15. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. They issued this wicked, evil Law, this command to, to carry out this genocide. And then notice what King uh, Ahasuerus and Haman do. They celebrate with a colon. They just kick back and celebrate. How heartless, how wicked, how evil they are. But the people, it says, of Shushan were perplexed. It literally means they were thrown into confusion. Now think about it. Maybe you're not a Jew living in that place, but your neighbors are. People down the street are. And you see, what in the world's going on? Wipe out all the Jews, the little babies, wipe out everybody. You're not a Jew. Well, you're safe, are you? Is anyone safe in such a kingdom? Is anyone safe with such rulers, with such with such wickedness and evil in high places? And not to mention, imagine how those Jewish people, how those Jewish families felt. Now, here's the question, beloved. What do we do with all this? What issues can we learn for our own lives today? I mean, there are several lessons here. We could talk for a few minutes about the importance of us as a nation. Being allies and supporting the nation of Israel. And I pray we will. But let's talk about it more on a personal level. What do we do with these lessons today? Well, there's three things that I jotted down I want to share with you very quickly. And then we'll go. As I look at Haman's life, as I look at what's going on here, I think about all this taking place in the verses we've read. I think, first of all, we need to remember that we need to deal with our anger. We need to deal with our anger. We've talked about that in this Sunday school hour. We see it played out here on the pages of the Bible of someone who did not deal with his anger in a proper way. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't let your anger fester. Deal with it in a biblical way. Repent if it's wrong. Forgive where needed. Seek reconciliation. Seek restitution. Don't give place to anger in your life to turn to vengeance and hatred. We need to deal with our anger. I read this past week. 
You all are familiar, I'm sure, with the old uh, feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Pretty much everybody's heard about the Hatfield and the McCoys, that long, infamous feud that went on. Well, you know how it got started? I read this past week, it got started over a stolen pig. A stolen pig. And all the bloodshed and all the heartache and all the sorrow, something small can quickly escalate and become something deadly. So first of all, we need to deal with our anger. Secondly, there's another important lesson here. We need to repent of our prejudice. We need to repent of our prejudice, whether it's against Jews or blacks or whites or Indians or Muslims or whoever. Prejudice is not honoring to God. In fact, I was amazed. I didn't know it. I walk in, look at the bulletin. And what does the bulletin talk about? Racial reconciliation day. Uh, We need to deal with this. We need to understand that prejudice is a sin. We're to love people as Jesus loves them. How can I share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with someone that I hate? And someone that I don't dislike or a whole group of people that I hate? Chuck Swindoll made an interesting observation. He said, no one is born with grudges. No one is born with grudges. Prejudice is not a package deal that comes with birth. It's something we learn. We're trained in it. We're not born hating. We must be taught to hate. What a grievous thing that goes on in our world that people are taught to hate. They're trained in prejudice. We need to repent of our prejudice. And then here's another important one. We need to trust God And do right. As we've seen, beloved, doing right can get us into a lot of trouble. But listen, we must trust God and do right anyway. We often wonder, I'm sure, why does God allow these times to come into our lives in the first place? I mean, he could insulate his people. He could insulate us from times of trouble and hardship. And indeed, he often does. I don't doubt that for a moment. That he's insulated us many times. But then there are those times when when Haman walks into our lives. He walks out onto the stage. What then? What do we do when a Haman puts our picture on his dartboard and begins to throw darts at it? What do we do then? I love what Margaret Hess said. She said, why does God allow storm, stress, catastrophe and petty annoyances in our lives? Listen, that's the question. Listen to how she answered it. She said, he does it so we don't forget to put our hands in his. To put our hands in his. These times remind us of just how dependent upon the Lord we really are. The Jews may have felt helpless and hopeless upon hearing this news. They were no doubt living. Imagine there's a date set on the calendar this year where you will be killed and your family and everyone like you will be slaughtered mercifully uh, on this certain day. And you live under that cloud day in and day out. They may have felt helpless and hopeless, beloved. They were not without help. Why? The Lord was their helper. The Lord was their helper. Haman wasn't battling ultimately against them. He was battling against God himself. And we know how that fight's going to turn out. <laughs> I love uh, Proverbs 18.10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. And our Savior. You should jot that reference down. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so when the enemies are around and they're coming in, there's a strong tower. The name of the Lord. Run to it and find the safety and solace that you need. In other words, we would be wise to fight these battles on our knees. 
I love this movie. Have y'all seen the movie uh, War Room? Have you seen that movie? I've got the movie. I've got the DVD. I've got the soundtrack. Even I don't often get the soundtrack. I've got the soundtrack. And I have it in my van. And I love the song. And I think, I think it's the first song. A song called Warrior. And, and with nobody else in the van with me, I love to turn it up. <laughs> I love to sing along with it. And I, and I repeat it over and over and over again. I just love that. So if you see me jamming down the road, you know I'm listening to Warrior. But listen to the words of Warrior, though. I see the smoke on the horizon. I, I feel my heart pounding in my chest. I, I hear the war raging all around me. Somehow I feel I was born for this. I, I can taste the fear, but I choose courage. As I raise my shield and lift my sword. And I fall on my knees and I fight like a warrior. I'm a warrior on my knees. I call on the name of the one who is conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror when I believe. The enemy trembles every time. He knows the battle is no longer mine. When I fall on my knees and I fight like a warrior, like a warrior. Can I encourage you, beloved? Fight these battles on your knees. And no matter what's going on, no matter who's coming against you, no matter what's taking place in our world, we must choose to trust God and do right in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we are so grateful that you are a strong tower. That we can run to you and we are safe. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know that our enemy walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he is a defeated foe. His days are numbered and he is damned forever to spend eternity in the lake of fire. And Father, we pray this morning that you would help us as individual believers, as Christian families, and as a church to fight these battles on our knees, trusting you. Father, I pray that you would help us to do these three things we've talked about. If there is anger in our hearts today, we would repent, turn away from it, and leave it. Father, if there is prejudice in our heart today, we repent of it, turn away from it, and leave it. And then, Father, you would help us to trust, to trust you and to do right regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequences, to do right and leave all the consequences to you. And Father, I do pray if anyone who's come in today who does not even know you, that your Holy Spirit would... Convict their heart even now and help them to see that they have sinned and fallen short of your glory and that the wages of sin is death. But you sent Christ who lived a sinless, perfect life, died on the cross, shed his precious blood and rose again. And Lord, if they will turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ, they will have this very moment eternal life that they, too, can have that strong tower. To run to in these days. We love you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.
our closing hymn this morning. And the invitation, I trust, is, is clear. If you need to be saved today and meet the Lord, we'd love to invite you. We would just take a Bible and share Christ with you today. And that will lead you to the cross. I'll be down at the front here in just a moment. And I'd love to welcome you. Really, a lot of today's message with those of us who know the Lord and maybe these things we've talked about. Maybe there's some anger in your heart. There's prejudice or there's a struggle going on. You're trying to decide, what am I going to do? What I do right? This altar is open. Would you come today and pray about those matters and give them to the Lord? Let's stand together. 450 is our closing hymn. I need thee every hour. The altar is open. If you'll come as we sing, uh, we'll have a time uh, here at the altar. Mm-hmm.